why we have one day in It's great, great to see you this Lord's Day. Really great to see you this Lord's Day. And um, thank you for praying for me while I was gone. And I just want to share three things very quickly about that trip that were... Um, very moving to me, and I hope will encourage you. Um, what stands out to, um, for World Reach in Meru, Kenya, is their. To, to what really stood out this time was their widows' ministry. They um, have been serving women for well over 30 years and uh, they do a weekly Bible study and they help them just survive um, the church. Uh, they don't have government assistance over there so the church is really involved and for $200 you can feed um, 25 women um, just keep them going every month. It's just very humbling to see um, what they need and um, how much God can stretch American dollars to meet the needs of brothers and sisters um, in hard times. But um, these women are joyful people. They depend on the Lord in ways that we can't imagine, as you can probably imagine. And what I did with, uh, you know, the Kenya people, they love to sing. You know, the Hispanics, they talk from their lips. And but the um, Kenyans, they speak from, you know, like this when they speak English, you know they have that that rich um, tone. That's why they sing so well. They they they're beautiful singers, and I taught them the glory of pottery. Glory be, and and, uh, and they sang it, and they were delighted to um, to participate. They're quick learners. I mean, great Scott. I mean, I I told the also sang with the the Bible class. I said, I want you to come home and be my band. Let's just you know, you guys. These are, they're so they're so astute uh, musically, and their their pitch is impeccable, and and they just love singing. But um, I taught them the Gloria Pottery, the Bible class, um, and um, also taught them Jesus Messiah because. Jesus Messiah, that great song we sing here, it's really biblical theology. It's who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us and just so forth. And they just they just love to sing. And it was very, very humbling when when I said goodbye to them, they were singing the glory of pottery. That that uh uh, that that really you know wow these guys um, that that really moved my heart deeply. Uh, the funniest thing about being there was that uh, this this old redneck from South Georgia is over there um, speaking trying to speak the king's English, and uh, that's not exactly the way it works. But it took them about a day to get used to me. But the, after the first day, they told David, the guy that's in charge, "Hey, we're getting it, we're getting it," and they're reading everything I'm saying. We're looking at scripture, PowerPoint, so they're they're following it, and that was obvious. But Patrick, the other teacher, the Kenyan um, minister over there, that's that's part of the goal. Train these men; they teach. Right, they they're there. They run the ministries and so forth, and it's very amazing to see how these how good a teach how good these people teach. But anyway, Patrick would stop as he would teach, and he would say, "Are we together?" And that's and so then the students would go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So so th about Thursday, in the middle of my presentation, I said, "Are we together?" <laughs> and they just busted out laughing, and uh, but they they got it, and um, you know the gospel. You have the, it's the same Holy Spirit, same Scripture, and even through uh, old South Georgia boy, um, the word can get out. So thank you for praying for me. Uh, it it means a ton that um, that you are praying. Um, God is faithful, and um, He's teaching me a lot. So are we together?
Good. I will probably say that in the sermon just to wake you up. All right. Let's read the scripture. Psalm 24. This is the word of the Lord. A psalm of David, the king of Israel. The earth is the Lord's, the earth is Yahweh's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he laid its foundations upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false or an idol, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, from Yahweh, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face. Such is Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God shall endure forever and ever. This psalm asks several questions, and any time the Bible asks questions, it's, uh, it's kind of easy for the preacher uh, or the teachers because you need to look at how the Bible answers the questions it asks, right? And the main question of this psalm is, is um, doubled up there at the end, who is the king of glory? And the answer is Yahweh, L-O-R-D, all caps. You remember what that means? That's, that's used 6,000 times. In the Old Testament, it's very important to know what that means. It's God's sacred name. That's who he is. He's Yahweh. It means he's the beginningless God. He's the one who's always been. And that name, that name above all names, is given to Jesus. If you follow the the translation of the language, it's very clear that Paul and the other apostles apply that name, Yahweh, to Jesus Christ. Jesus is Yahweh. He's the Lord of hosts. And this morning we're going to look at three wonderful things about Yahweh, the Lord, the King of glory. And to start off, here's a question for you. Where are you? Where are you? I'm not getting metaphorical here. And just where are you? Well, you are, uh, you are in Anniston, Alabama. You're at Faith Presbyterian Church, right? You're right here. Uh, I've, one of the weird things that I'm experiencing from traveling uh, is that I'm waking up in the middle of the night and I don't know where I am. And I, I have to say, I just stop. It. It's really weird. It, it took me by surprise. It kind of scared me at first, but I realized am I supposed to? I'm supposed to be going somewhere. I don't want to be left here. I'm going to go home. <laughs> so I need to get to but I, Oh, I'm at home. I'm home. I'm home. Um, it's not tomorrow. I'm here. I'm, I'm home, right? Um, where are you? These verses start off, the psalm starts off by telling you that you are in God's world. And this is one, as Ralph Davis says in his commentary on this psalm, this is one of those sledgehammer verses it just knocks you right upside the head. It's a wake-up call verse. 
It's not just poetry. It's, it's a wake up to remind you that God owns everything. He owns the people. He owns all the stuff. Everything is His. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything. He owns everything. Here's another question for you. What is um, the most frightening, frustrating thing um, that you are facing right now in your world? In your little world, right? What is causing you the most fear and the most anxiety right now? could paraphrase this psalm like Walter Kaiser who says this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all the terrorists who dwell in it. Or you could say, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all the terrible leaders of all the countries who live in it. You could say that. God is in charge. This is his world. He owns Americans, he owns Kenyans, he owns the Russians, he owns the North Koreans, he owns the Colombians. He he owns everything. He knows what's going on. He has infinite knowledge and wisdom as he directs the world. He even directs what's going on in the stock market. It's a horrible week, wasn't it? So David wants you to see, he wants me to see that God is in charge of the world. He is the sovereign king. This is my father's world. And so David is is trying to get us to see that that, um, God is not indifferent. We shouldn't be deist. You know what that is? It's, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. It means that God made the world and then he hurled it out there in the universe and said, What's, Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. That's not the Lord's personality or his display of his power. He is in charge of everything. God's not indifferent. And and God gives us uh, two reasons. David gives us two reasons why God is in control of his world. Look at number one. uh, He founded it upon the seas. Secondly, he established it upon the waters. The first part is obviously talking about God's work of creation. God made the world. He called everything into being from nothing. He caused light to shine out of darkness and into the darkness. We know this is about creation. But secondly, the second part of that verse, the verb there, emphasizes what someone does again and again and again and again and again and again. And again, like unloading the dishwasher. You probably do that again today or tomorrow. You'll do it again. It's just again and again and again. God, in other words, God, uh, this is, uh, you could say it this way. This has a present tense feel. He is establishing it. Again and again and again. In other words, God continues to maintain. He continues to care for and to sustain sustain what he has created. And so whether you or I believe it or not, this 
maybe yeah, may kind of get you. Oh, really? Oh, that's good news. There is stability in the world. There's stability. Because God is stable. That's why it's stable. And the world will continue to be a fruitful place. The world will be continue to be a solid place. And that's so important for us to remember because the fact that God is the sovereign king, that he maintains his creation every day should calm us down. Because the message that we're getting all the time is everything is out of control. Oh no, what's going to happen? What's going to happen next? That's the message we get all the time. And we tend to live in fear. God has guaranteed all things will move toward a specific end. You know what that end is? It's the coming of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all going to come down to that. To the return of Christ. You know, God made that covenant with Noah, gave you the rainbow, gave it, right? He's going to preserve the world. He will keep things going until the return of his son. And then it will all be renewed. That's good news. Just relax. Just relax. Enjoy the ride, right? And you can't miss Jesus Christ here. Uh, Jesus Christ himself, the Lord, is part of keeping all things together. He was there at the beginning of creation. God is, uh, Jesus is, is the one through whom God created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And he upholds all things by his powerful word, by the word of his power. Paul says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything is held together. Jesus holds it all together. Sin came into the world through a man and death through sin, but the world is still predictable. The world will continue to work. The world is not like a runaway train that's about to leave the tracks. The earth is the Lord's. That it's important to remember. This is my father's world. He is the Lord of glory. Secondly, the writer takes your your eyes off the um, the fact that God has created the world and owns the world. Now he takes our eyes to the hill of the Lord. He asks the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And what is your typical response to that? As a good Presbyterian, right? You know what the answer is. Our typical response is no one. Right? There is none righteous. No, not one. But I want to look at that verse in a positive light. Let's look at the scriptures in a positive light, okay? Let's look at it half full. Right? What I just said is absolutely true. There's none, not, there's none righteous, no, not one. But I want you to, to look at, just look at the context here. Look at the, look at the psalm. Let's look at it together um, in a positive light. God made the world. He's got the whole world in his hands. Uh, he's got the little bitty baby in his hands. He's got the world. He's got Need some echo and so forth. He's got the whole world. Y'all know that, right? And yes, darkness came into the world. But God has always invited people into his presence. 
He's always shared his life with people made in his own image. He has always invited people like you and me to dwell in his presence and to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That's, that is his heart's disposition. And so there's a positive invitation aspect of this verse. God is an approachable God. And we ought to be in, in awe that he invites us in to his life to enjoy him forever. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Not who shall ascend the hill of the Lord. It's an invitation. The scriptures invite us through Jesus Christ. The scriptures invite us through the King of glory who is full of grace and truth. So let's, let's move on. What's, the, what's up with the hill theme? Uh, this going up the hill of the Lord. Well, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. The garden was, was high up in the mountains, apparently. And we, I don't normally think of the Garden of Eden being in or around mountains, but if you pay attention to Genesis and look at other places and those passages we read as the call to worship today, that the garden was a high place. And the tabernacle and the temple, as God gave those great places of worship to his people, they had all this imagery that pointed back to the high place of the Garden of Eden where God had a sweet fellowship. Adam had sweet fellowship with God as a father and Adam and Eve um, were in perfect union with him and one another and so forth. Um, but they, they live in the garden and when um, when David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem to Mount, Z- Mount Zion, the place where the temple was to be built, it was a high place. You remember, it's, it's a Phyllis said in Sunday school, remember you go up to Jerusalem. You go up. Everybody knows that. If you read anything about, if heard any Bible teaching about the New Testament, the, Jerusalem is a high place. And so God is always inviting people to come up the mountain to meet him. Figuratively, metaphorically, but this is you know, figuratively in the Bible. It's always um, going up. Think about Moses. Where did God meet with Moses? It was on a mountain, right? Goes up on a mountain. Think about Elijah. God said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Jesus preached the sermon on the mount. Right? It's a high place. And so when you think about God's presence, you need to think geographically and with topography as well, the hills and the and how how the earth is shaped and so forth and and God is always inviting us to come up into his presence and that 's why we call what do we call close encounters and if you 're a Christian, this is a real thing it 's very subjective, but it is as real as you are you are sitting there. You have been in the presence of God in a powerful, inexplicable way. You have had a close encounter with the living God. You have had a mountaintop experience, right? You have. We all have. If you're a Christian, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And this isn't a sermon about mountaintop experiences, but if you 
read the scripture and you pray and you ask God to draw near to you, you will probably be surprised with an encounter with the Holy Spirit, with the living God through the Holy Spirit. And we do that in corporate worship. We are filled with the Spirit as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we hear the preaching of the Word as we take the sacraments. It happens. It's a reality. God's presence is, is, is near to us. You, you can feel it. Ooh, he's a Presbyterian. He's talking about feelings. Watch out. Oh, but it's true. It's absolutely true. But there are stipulations about going up the mountain. You, you can't just waltz into God's presence. There are requirements to go up the hill uh, because according uh, to verse 3, the Lord's hill is what? It is a holy place. It's a holy place. And so whoever comes up the hill must share in God's holiness. And verse 4 gives you and and me a description of what the worshiper should be like. He must have clean hands and a pure heart. That means an undivided heart. A heart that's fully focused on the Lord. Right? And it means that you know, the person who comes into God's presence must have an external aspect and an internal aspect of holiness. Look, let's think about number one. You must have a, a disposition to live externally for God. You must walk with the Lord in your life and love His commandments. Love the way He has taught us to live. That He points us to the life that is truly life in His Word. Does He not? And we just went through the book of James, which is is basically true faith is faith that loves God and people. Right? That's what true faith is. Is that not what we see in that book? And if you're a Christian, you're experiencing that in your life more and more, right? Doesn't mean you're perfect, but you do love the Lord and you love people. In new ways that surprise you, right, at times, right? John says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So true faith will be lived out externally. There will be an outward dimension of our faith. And Paul talks about this outward dimension uh, of Christianity, of the Christian life, when he says we are God's, and thank goodness, This is the relief right here, okay? This shows you the motivation. This shows you the power. Hey, how am I doing as a Christian? Well, here it is. Here it is. We are God's workmanship, okay? Created. We're new creations in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, going to Kenya, wow, that sounds like a really good work, doesn't it? It is. It's preaching the gospel. It's, and I love doing this. Going down, to, I'm going to Columbia next month. Even yeah, this is happening way faster than I thought it would. I'm just, you know, that's the way the Lord does things in in our lives. He's okay. Slow this down, right? You know, teaching Bible classes is is a wonderful opportunity for a minister of the gospel. But uh, so is uh, that. Those are good works. God prepared those in advance for us to do. But so. Um, so is cleaning teeth. I have my teeth cleaned this week. The lady does a great job every time I go. Hadn't been flossing like I need to, right? I have to, you know, have to confess all that. But that is a good work that God prepared in advance for 
that great helper um, to do. Um, working in the GI lab. Y'all know what a goozle is? A goozle is right here. That's, that's your goozle. You know, people get stuff stuck in their goozles all the time. And Catherine has to go in and help get stuff out of the goozle. And, uh, and that's a, that is a good work. So it is prepared in advance for Catherine to, because she's on call, she goes up there and helps with the goozle, right? They do their goozle, they have goozle greatness over there. This is an advertisement for Stringfellow Hospital. So we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And uh, that's why we do good works. It's because God has renewed us in Jesus Christ. We're created in Christ Jesus. So if you're hooked to the king of glory, of righteousness, you are going to live a life that's truly life in Him. Worshiping the Lord, loving God, loving other people. And the word, this is a beautiful um, illustration. The, the word for um, workmanship is poema. Just like, sounds like poem. That's where we get the word poem from. So, and if you connect all the dots, that means that God's an artist. He's an artist. He created you. He created and he's recreated you. He's renewing you in his image, in the image of Jesus Christ. He indwells you as a work of art. And because he has united his heart, your heart to his and your heart to Jesus Christ, because he lives in us, we will work out our salvation. Because God is at work. He's still working in us. He's still sustaining us over and over and over again, like unloading the dishwasher. He does it every day, right? He sustains us and he holds us and he keeps us because we are his workmanship. We are his beautiful treasures of art who go about doing the good works he has prepared in advance for us to do. So there's an outward dimension of the person who can go up God's hill, but there's also an inward disposition toward the Lord, a heart disposition. The person who comes up the hill into God's presence does not lift up his soul to an idol or what is worthless. In other words, he's not consumed by idolatry. Which is a prevalent theme throughout Scriptures starting way back. Ten Commandments, you shall not uh, covet. That's the word for over-desiring and idolatry, as we've talked about many times. In other words, you can't go up the hill, you can't live in God's presence if you're all caught up in idolatry. You can't do it. And this verse is, you know, if you're honest with yourself, it's, it's very intense to consider this verse. It's, it's very intense for a sinful person like me and you to think about what this verse means. It, because it addresses our motives, it addresses our deeds, it, it addresses our words, it addresses our affections. All of those things are under this microscope of rigorous scrutiny. And it just basically says, look, you can't go up this hill... If you're not 100% devoted to God, you can't go up. And if you didn't understand the gospel, if I didn't understand the gospel, this section of this psalm would lead us into despair. 
It really would. But despair has no place in your life if you are a Christian. Why is that? Because, because you can't forget this. What God requires, He always provides in His grace as a free gift. As a free gift. And a true Israelite in David's day, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament time, they, they would, they, if somebody if was in the family of God, if they'd been changed by God's promises of grace, they knew that God provides what they needed or had provided to go up the hill. They knew that from Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11. They knew the promise of God there. It says, I have given it. I have given it the blood. That's what it's talking about. For you. On the altar to make atonement for your souls. There it is. There's the gospel in the Old Testament. One of the many places it's there. And you know, when I was teaching the, the Bible class to the Kenyan pastors, I'm, I'm telling them that the Old Testament is about Jesus. You know, it's a Bible survey, but you've got to land on who Jesus is, and you've got to land on the scriptures are about him. And you tell them that the law, like Paul says, the law is good, it's righteous and holy. It teaches us how to live the life that is truly life. We're God's children, just like you teach your children how, how they should live and thrive in, in their lives. And there's law in this passage in, in Psalm 24. You have to have clean hands and a pure heart to live in, in God's presence. That's the law. To go up the hill, you have to keep the law. But as I just mentioned, the Old Testament is full of grace. Yahweh knew that his people in this age would struggle with sin. And he knows in the New Covenant, we have the same struggles with idolatry. All of us do. I'm really struggling with the idol of comfort right now. And trusting God for provision and so forth. I just tell you, I'm, I'm struggling with that. I know God is sovereign. Grant's been preaching all these sermons about, you know, going into RUF ministry and God providing and so forth. That's good. I need to hear That's why I need to be in worship, listening to all that encouragement. We all struggle with idolatry. So, so when we sin, we need to go to the Leviticus-like passages in the New Testament. Do you got any of those in the New Testament about grace and forgiveness and mercy? They're like they're everywhere or all over the place because the New Testament shows us how Jesus has fulfilled every promise of the Old Testament. For example, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's sweet. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we have to constantly go back to the blood of Jesus Christ that keeps on cleansing us from every sin. We've got to repent, but we must also believe the gospel. That we are forgiven. So, verse 4. Don't let that shake you up. And that should never turn you away from the Lord's holy place. Because He has invited you to come. And He has provided you the mercy and grace that you need in Jesus Christ. And so, struggling Christian. Any of you out there? Got a mirror here, right? Need one? We're all strugglers, all of us. Let me, let me encourage you to do, I'm going to ask you to do something. 
which is what your application is. Just just live like Jacob. Look at look at verse six. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face. Jacob. That's what it says. Who seek the face. Jacob. Right? You know, we are Israel. We are Jacob as well, right? We're both, right? Yeah, some translations uh, say the God of Jacob because if you think about it, um, just saying Jacob doesn't make much sense, does it? He, he is, um, especially when you're talking about people seeking the Lord, right? <laughs> Jacob was a scoundrel. Like everybody else in the Old Testament. He was a deceiver, right? He was not a model Christian or a model Israelite. Of course, Israel, they didn't call him Israel until after the wrestling match I'm about to tell you about. But nobody in the Bible was um, really a model believer, if you, but especially Jacob. So why, what is this doing here? Well, that's literally what it says. It just says Jacob. <laughs> Such is the generation. Jacob. Who are you? Well, I'm Jacob. I'm Jacob, right? But this is what David is saying. Jacob is really the greatest model of Christianity. Other than, certainly Jesus is, but, but in the Old Testament. Why is Jacob such an important model for us to follow? Be like Jacob, right? <laughs> well, you find his defining moment, don't you, in Genesis 32. It's that great episode, the greatest illustration of his life, that great um, time when he wrestled with God. Do you remember that story? He's, he's wrestling with God. And what does Jacob say to God? I will not let you go till you bless me. That's what he says. And what is so strange about that passage is that, you know, they are, God is wrestling with Jacob. And Jacob, God could have vaporized him at any moment. Just He could have just just destroyed him, burned him up. But he just, he just touches his hip. You know this, right? He just touches it. He doesn't go, boom, knocks his hip out of joint. He just touches his hip and he throws it out of joint. Right? But Jacob just hangs on. He hangs on for dear life. And Yahweh blesses him. What, what, what is more precious than the blessing of God? And here's the implication. Here's why you and I should be like Jacob. Jacob has come to the end of himself. He has no one else to turn to. He's holding on to the Lord by his fingernails. That means that Christians are people who live lives of constant repentance and faith and dependence on Jesus Christ. We hold on to God, especially in trouble, by the fingernails. Because we have no one else to turn to. We have no one else. And what what happened to Jacob? God changed his name to Israel. What does that mean? It's very it's a it's a great picture of that being in two humanities, being pulled in both directions at the same time. Israel means God wrestles. And the good news is God will wrestle with you just like you wrestle with your kids over over their maturing as, as people. God will, will wrestle with you over your idols, but he will bless you with his presence. And all you have to do 
is hang on to the promises of God in Jesus Christ. You have to believe the promises about the Son of God in the gospel. And that brings us home to Jesus. This is the last thing in the psalm. He is the one who takes you and me up the mountain. He's the one that takes us into the presence of God. He's the king of glory because he is mighty in battle. He is the one who defeated our greatest enemies who are sin and death. And he does so in the most unusual way, does he? Doesn't he? He battles God literally on the cross. He wrestles with God on the cross. And God doesn't just put his hip out of socket. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. As we sang earlier, he was crushed for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin. And because of his righteous life in our place, because of his righteous death in our place, he recreated us through the word of the gospel. And now he sustains us through that same word that you belong to me. You are a treasure. I am well pleased with you. And now we are the righteousness of God in him. And now we can ascend the hill of the Lord. We can stand in God's holy place. Because after the king of glory finished this battle on the cross, God raised him up and he was welcomed through the gates of heaven, through the everlasting doors. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up over everlasting doors that the king of glory may come in. But Jesus doesn't go into the the city alone, right? He takes you and me into the very presence of God right now. By faith we come, as we read earlier, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Listen to what's going on there. To innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. That's what that's who lives in heaven. And to Jesus, most important part of heaven, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You and I have access to God's presence through faith in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus returns, he will make the whole world one big mountain. And he will fill the world with God's glory. And we will live with the Lord and one another forever. That's the hope of the gospel. And so God made the world. It all belongs to Him. All the people and everything in it. You belong to Him. He has given you everything you need in Christ. Because He is the King of glory. Let us pray.